IGU Voices podcast. I will be your host, Anna Givyazda. I'm an intern at the Institute for Global Understanding and a master's in social work student at Monmouth University. The IGU Voices podcast will interview scholars and other experts who will contribute to a greater awareness of the world around us. Join IGU Voices once a month to sharpen global literacy and learn about the ways that we are all interconnected. Thank you for joining the podcast today. I am excited to share an interview I conducted with Dr. Raj Reddy and Ms. Marcia Condoy on the topic of animal protection across borders. Dr. Raj Reddy is the director of the Global Animal Law and Animal Law Advanced Degree Programs at the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark Law School. He also chairs the International Subcommittee of the Animal Law Section of the American Bar Association and is a board member for Minding Animals International. Additionally, he has advanced human and non-human interest as part of his work for the Animal Legal Defense Fund and the Human Rights Law Network in New Delhi, India. Ms. Marcia Condoy is currently an animal law student at Lewis and Clark Law School, which happens to be the top animal law school in the country. She earned a full scholarship from the Center for Animal Law Studies in order to pursue an LLM in animal law at Lewis and Clark Law School in the 2021 and 2022 academic year. Additionally, she is a lawyer in Peru that has expertise in constitutional law and human rights. Also, she was a research fellow at the Enwanka International Human Rights Organization where she served as the director of the Center for Research and Defense of Vulnerable Populations in 2020. Furthermore, Ms. Condoy directs the animal law practice at Preston Law Firms, which is the first law firm in Peru with an animal law specialization. The bios of our two guest speakers will be linked in the show notes. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you, Marcia and Roz, for joining us today on the IGU Voices podcast and speaking on the topic of animal protection across borders. How are you both doing this morning? Thank you so much. I feel very good. This is a beautiful, beautiful campus, so I am very, very happy to be here. Thank you. Yeah, doing great as well. Thank you so much for having us. So to jump right into the content of this podcast episode, can you briefly describe what animal law entails for individuals that might be unfamiliar with this field? Yeah, so a lot of the interests that animals have and a lot of the protections that they have are informed by what legal protections there are. And so animal law is really animal advocates, advocates who want to protect the lives and advance the interests of animals, doing so through the legal system, perhaps in addition to things like social activism, you know, scholarship and the like. But the law is so integrally important because the law, again, is where those those protections and those interests are codified. And so if we're able to not just advance those codifications, but then build on them, it allows for a meaningful change for animals um, in the U.S. And, and worldwide. How do animal protection laws vary by country? 
the situation of the protection of animals around the globe is very diverse. You have countries like Germany that have recognized their dissentings in their constitutions or in the civil code. Recently, the domestic uh, animals have been recognized as uh, member families in different jurisdictions such as Colombia, in Argentina or in Spain. But also you have many, many countries that don't have any protection for animals uh, like China and many countries in Africa, for instance. And you have many other countries that have very basic legislation in, in their jurisdictions. Some countries protect uh, more the companion animals, or they are more focused on in animals that are very close to the human beings, for instance, the simios, gorillas. There are certain countries that protect animals because of their mental capacities, because they are more intelligent than, like men. And other countries, like in Latin America, protect animals because of their ecological function. So if an animal is very intelligent but is not fulfilling ecological function, are not part of the natural habitat of the natural resources of the country, these animals are not protected. So the variation is, is very diverse. I see. What barriers prevent animal laws and policies from being implemented effectively in the United States? That's a great question. I mean, the very first, at least federal, protections for animals here in the U.S. came about through the 28-hour law, and that law is really interesting because in the late 1800s, what you saw were a bunch of animals being raised in the West and being shipped 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 miles to the Midwest and to the East Coast to be slaughtered. And because the railroads were basically a monopoly at that time, you had to go through the railroads or you couldn't go at all. And what the railroads were doing was making sure that they were moving other types of freight or humans and making animals um, in those shipments have to wait. And a lot of those animals died and a lot of those animals um, suffered incredibly along the way. And a lot of them lost a lot of weight too. And so farmers came together, ranchers and lobby Congress, and they said, we want to make sure that these animals are protected, not just for their own sake, but for our livelihoods. And so a lot of these animal protections here in the United States somewhat fall along these same lines. We protect animals because they are of value to humans who, who own them. And just sticking with the, the farmed animal context today, we actually see very few farmed animal protections because, well, the, the, the analysis is somewhat different when you're trying to protect your animals from others versus uh, you not wanting your animals protected from yourself. And so we see no federal laws on the books that protect animals, uh, farmed animals, when they're being reared on these farms, these concentrated animal feeding operations. And all of those protections, if there are any, they're carried out at the state level. And state laws actually make it so that those farmed animals aren't really protected. One way they do that is by not even including cows, pigs, sheep, chickens, fishes, under the definition of animals who receive protections through those laws. So they're just not included. The other way that they exclude the interest of farmed animals is that they'll feature what's called a common husbandry practice that is an exception. So the idea is that if companies, if agricultural industries are employing a particular way of rearing these animals, then by virtue of them doing that, it doesn't constitute cruelty. So if enough companies do things like shear off the beaks of chickens, cut off the tails of pigs, subject animals to intense confinement such that they can't 
you know, stand up, turn around, you know, spread their limbs without touching the bars of their cells or another animal, because enough entities do that, it's now cruel. And so there's the question of, do we, do we even have the laws on the books? And for companion animals, I think we do. Uh, but for farmed animals, the exceptions are kind of built in so that the industry that has these animals aren't being held accountable to them. And that's just one of the areas where we need to see tremendous improvements. I agree. What barriers prevent animal laws and policies from being implemented on more of a global scale? In a global scale, I think that the most problematic thing is that the people think that animals cannot be uh, considered uh, persons, that they mm -hmm. are, um, they have to be always considered as objects. What happened is that in the legal construction, in the traditional legal construction of the law, one can only be object or subject. And the people used to consider subjects only to human beings or the groups of human beings, such as enterprises. That is usually. So the first step that the animal advocacy wants to wants to achieve globally is to consider animals not like objects. And that could be reallocating the animals to the category of subjects or create a third category, another category, a legal category. But uh, the first step is not consider animals as objects. Currently, there is no any country recognizing in their legislation animals as subjects and animals that will receive protection by their intrinsic value because they deserve that protection because of their selves. We can see the changes in the law are in the judiciary with the sentences of the courts. You know, different courts such as in Ecuador or in Argentina, uh, in India have recognized animals uh, as subjects. But this recognition has to be translated to the legislative because the legislative is the representation of the citizens and only with the recognition from the from the Congress, from the legislative, we will say that the people consider animals no more as subjects, but rather as subjects and they have to be protected as such. No. Yeah. Thank you. In what areas of the world or specific countries do you perceive animals are thriving due to the animal protection policies and laws that are in place? Well, from my experience, I can say uh, that one of that is Argentina. Mm -hmm. I can see in the Argentina judges that they, they are very open to accept that animals could be protected as subjects. Uh, we have, for instance, the sentences of Sandra and Cecilia. Cecilia is a chimpanzee and Sandra is an, is an orangutan. And both of them have been liberated from Kautsus and Cecilia was translated to a sanctuary to in, in Brazil and Sandra is in the United States. They have been liberated because of a sentence of a judge. Other countries could be Ecuador that recently have recognized a monkey as a subject of protection under the rights of nature of their constitution. The area that I can say that also have a great protection for animals in their legislation is the European Union. Mm -hmm. We can see that they have for farm animals a very high standards of protection. The problem is that the enforcement is a little difficult because 
in general, the enforcement for laws, for human rights, for uh, for many, many different kinds of, of laws is difficult. Mm -hmm. And for animals, it's the same, no? But at least they have the protection under the legislation. And that is a good beginning. And I'll add to that and say just some areas that we're seeing some developments in animal protection is the banning of animals for the use in cosmetic testing. And I think Mexico uh, this past year was the 41st or 44th country to ban the sale of cosmetics that have been tested on animals. And I think countries are just appreciating that we don't need to be using animals now for these kinds of products, especially because we have alternative methods that are actually much cheaper and much more reliable than sort of um, those that use animal products. And I'll say internationally, there's the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling. And um, that treaty was created um, in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And it was created at a time when whale numbers were plummeting. All of these states were engaging in the hunting of whales and were bringing them to the brink of extinction. And these particular states got together and said, we need to, we need to make sure that we are not ending this industry. So we have to set quotas upon all of these member states for the number of whales that they can take of different species each year. And that sort of logic underpinned the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling for 20, 25 years. And then in the 1970s, we started to see other states appreciate more critically the need to protect the environment and the the part that whales play in in that protection. And so we saw shortly thereafter a number of states who didn't even engage in whaling join the International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling, this treaty, and vote to institute a global moratorium for 10 years. And that saw whales, whale numbers increase dramatically. And that moratorium has actually been been lengthened indefinitely. And so we are now seeing whale populations thrive and just a few states, just a very few of them, um, engage in whaling today. So it's one of the one of the success stories that we've seen internationally. And are there legal repercussions? Yeah, so one of the things about this International Convention for the Regulation of Whaling, it's you are legally bound mm -hmm. to follow the the stipulations that you agree to. And this particular, I'm glad you asked this question because this is pretty much the only case in animal law that has been tried by uh, an international court. So the International Court of Justice actually oversaw or decided a, a case that was brought by Australia that was arguing that Japan was basically manipulating the treaty to engage in whaling under the guise of scientific research. And that court held Japan to account. And what specific countries or areas of the world are lacking in animal protection laws? Most of the state. I, I will invite you to review the, there is a platform that the global animal law, and there is a map, a very interactive map there. And you will see that countries that are lacking from legal protection are countries that are in Africa, most of the countries of Africa, uh, China and Asian countries and countries with a very low protection for animals are in Latin America and in Western, in Eastern Europe. United States also is not, is considered a, a, a country that don't have a very good qualities of, of law of protection for animals, no? in contrast to the European Union, for instance. 
The next question is for you, Marcia. Please describe your role as an animal law lawyer in Peru. Yes, of course. Thank you for that question. I began to work in, in human rights and labor law. We have in Peru legislation from 2016 that is the, the law of animal protection. And I realized that this law is not fully uh, used by people who want to protect animals. People who want to protect animals in Peru used to use social media and used to do the work by their own. My first job was to communicate to the people that they can use this law. This law, at least for companion animals that are dogs and cats, is very protective if you want to use it. That was a first step in my career, that is to communicate existence and how to use this law. And also part of my career has been to educate the policemen because the policemen don't used to receive the compliance against animal cruelty. Mm -hmm. So I had a lot of experience to go with people to the police stations to put the, the compliance. That was a second step, and now we are promoting to have more compliance against different people in order to show that animal cruelty can be prevented from the law and that there could be effective sanctions to people who is committing bad things against animals. At the same time, I like so much to mix human rights with animal law. For instance, using the in Peru we have the right to personal development. That means that you have the freedom to choose what kind of life you want to have, and what kind what kind of family you want to have, for instance. And in that freedom of what kind of family you want to have, you can choose to have a family with animals. And we know that as multi-species family. Mm -hmm. So we can protect animals through this new construction, legal construction, that's multi-species family. And also we can protect animals using the right to a healthy environment. That means that if you consider that animals are part of the nature, because human, human beings are also part of the nature, but if you consider that animals are also part of the nature, are elements of the nature, it will be important to protect them in order to protect the environment. And yes, and I achieved that in my law firm, we opened an animal law area. I am here in the United States for one year, but I am very happy that my co-workers continue working in that area. Yeah, I am a social work student and the field of social work is pretty much based on upholding the human rights. So I really appreciate how you tie in human rights with animal law. I think that's really interesting. Thank you for sharing. The next question is for you, Raj. Uh, what goals are you seeking to accomplish as an animal law educator? Yeah, so thank you for that question. So I teach at the Center for Animal Law Studies at Lewis and Clark Law School. And we were the first to create sort of a fully fledged animal law program and that was back in 2008, and the idea was we wanted to attract all of those advocates, not just from the U.S., but around the world, who wanted to advance the interests of animals using the law. And so to that end, we have a number of JD students, so general law students, but also in 2012, we created what's called the Animal Law LLM, and it's designed for those uh, those lawyers, so as long as you have a legal degree, but you may not have, you know, been able to engage in animal law issues at your law school or through your career, we offer this advanced degree in animal law to sort of equip those lawyers to advance the interests of animals as well. And so 
the animal law program and myself, we are really seeking to sort of equip the next generation of animal law advocates. And we're so lucky to have, you know, a number of very dedicated U.S. animal lawyers and then also international attorneys like Marcia come to our program, both in person and online. And it's really this nexus of exchange and collaboration that sort of equips, again, these these advocates to take what's working here in the U.S. and what's not working here in the U.S. and what's working abroad and not working abroad and really, you know, contemplate the, the realm of possibilities for each each student for them to go back home and affect the change in the areas of animal law that they want to affect that change in, whether it's farmed animal issues, wildlife, companion animal issues, animals in transportation, international animal law, uh, animals in research and testing, and so on. So students find one or two areas of specialty, and you know they they come to Lewis and Clark because they're so passionate about animals and their interests, and um, we're just so proud to see everything that they've done, all of our alumni in the years that um, that have passed. The next set of questions are specific to the work you both have been doing on the CAP Treaty. Can you both describe the work you were doing on the Convention on Animal Protection, or CAP? Well, I was integrated to the Convention on Animal Protection team by Dr. Reedy, who is with me now. I am working with him for the university. I'm very proud. And currently, everybody in the team is um, helping to construct the CAP Treaty in the sense, in the substantive sense, and say uh, what will be the provisions for animals because we have the knowledge from uh, as animal lawyers. Uh, one of my specific tasks now is to reach people with different uh, from different areas of knowledge, such as biologists or people who is in environmental studies, because we want to have more uh, and different approaches mm-hmm. for construct this international treaty. Also, uh, I am very interested in rich people with other worldviews because we have this kind of protection that is from Western point of view. We know in other parts of the world, indigenous people or people from Latin America, from Asia, they have different kinds of protection for animals. And we would like to know more about that. Yeah, and I think that's an excellent framing of you know what we're trying to do. And I'll add to that, you know, There have been a couple of animal protection treaties that have been proposed over the years. The first one um, was in 1988 by Professor David Favor, and recently, in 2019, by um, the Global Animal Law Association. And our group is comprised of, you know, animal law attorneys and advocates. And what we all sort of knew, the onset of the pandemic, was that this thing that we're all experiencing, I've been experiencing for the past couple of years, is a direct result of how we have mistreated and encroached upon and destroyed the habitat of animals. And, you know, one of the things that we're trying to do is use this moment to both educate and sort of empower the leaders to to really see that animal protection is a way of protecting our interests as humans, just like and no different from really 
the reasons why we protect the environment is to protect ourselves. I think more robust laws in the environmental sphere, and we have more robust international laws in the environmental sphere, especially in the last few years dealing with climate change. But animal protection is an integral part of that. We can't just protect you know, habitat without protecting those animals in those habitats that keep those ecosystems alive, who perform those vital ecosystem services. And so it's really a question now of, can we have an international discourse around the need to protect animals at this most critical time? Because we cannot divorce that conversation from conversations around climate change and pollution um, because those harms that we're all inflicting upon animals within our country are externalized and experienced by other states outside of our countries. And so animal protection is really a story of our shared fate. And that's really what the Convention on Animal Protection, that's the story it's trying to tell. And what stage is the CAP Treaty at? Well, uh, we have a first draft now, but we, uh, we are designing a second draft that will be the final draft that we will present to the states. Mm -hmm. And currently we are looking for uh, sponsor states also in order to reach the key people, key diplomats, key representatives that will take the CAF into the international discussion and to achieve in any moment that the question of the animal welfare will be discussed for the first time in, in the international stage. That will be a, a huge step for the animal protection globally. What challenges do you foresee in getting the CAP Treaty approved and implemented? We know that we are challenging powers that are currently using animals. That these big companies that are using land in the United States are using the people in the United States and are using the animals in the United States, and they have a lot of influence on politicians. It's a fierce step that we have to uh, overcome. But this is not a problem that, for instance, the, the human rights have not faced in the past and currently. We have a system of universal protection for, of human rights. And now we, we are working more for labor laws, for instance, in different countries. And even though we know that there are certain countries with very low standards of labor law, we can make a parallelism here and see that there are challenges in the human rights and also in the animal protection that don't have to discourage us to pursue a better world. Many people is working now in human rights and many people is working now in animal protection and we will be working every day, no? So there is no limit for us. At least I cannot perceive that from my point of view. For individuals that feel inspired or called to help in promoting animal protection, is there any ways that they can get involved in supporting the CAP Treaty? Yes, of course. I invite everybody to go to conventionanimalprotection.org. There you will find the contact of us. It will be very important for us to reach the social and the civil support because we know governments and politicians do what the people say that they have to do because from, from people is that the governments have the power. So we are looking for people that can do this a reality. The social movement is very important for us. I invite everybody to engage in this particular convention, animal protection. And I'll add to that and say, you know, your listeners, for those who feel passionate about, you know, protecting the environment, combating climate change, preventing the next pandemic, the CAP is a tool to, to do that, and you know, our group is, is using it and advancing it to the best of our abilities. But there are so many things that 
folks at home can do, and that's, you know, divest from these animal use industries that subject animals to this kind of treatment to the extent that animals are being mistreated in your state, in your community, divest from that particular use. We've actually seen considerable movements on university campuses to push the administration to divest from fossil fuels. And a very similar thing can happen with respect to pushing administration to, if not divest from animal use industries, then to offer more plant-based foods for their students or to provide additional accommodations and the like. And when we go to the grocery store, it's really just about when you go to the, the dairy aisle or the milk aisle, just moving your hand a couple of feet to the right and choosing, you know, oat milk as opposed to dairy or cow milk. And that over time makes an incredible amount of difference. And so there are so many sort of small changes that we can make in our everyday lives to, if not advance, you know, things on the international scale to at least change the economic hurdles that animal advocates face because the stronger that these animal industries are, the more difficult it is going to be for anybody anywhere to affect change. And that power, and we don't think that we have it, but we have incredible power as just everyday consumers. All right. Thank you so much again for your willingness to be interviewed for this podcast and sharing your knowledge and expertise on animal protection as well as the work you are doing on CAP, sharing that with us today. And I applaud the efforts and the work you are doing on CAP and in supporting animal protection. I want to thank you for joining us today on the podcast. I'm grateful to have a platform where I can share these issues within animal protection through the means of interviewing experts that are currently working to improve the conditions of animals. For audience members that are interested in learning more about animal protection globally and or the CAP treaty, please reference the show notes. Additionally, if you would like to learn more about the IGU at Monmouth University and learn about any upcoming events that we are hosting or co-hosting, this information will be provided in the show notes as well. That concludes this episode of the podcast. Please tune in for next month to hear from another expert or scholar. Thank you.